you have your Bible with you this morning, turn with me to the book of Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. We began last week this expositional series through the book of Ezra. We're also going to go, Lord willing, through the book of Nehemiah as well. These two books historically have been combined. Ezra and Nehemiah happened at the same time. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. At a time when God was doing a work in the people and among the people of Israel that was long awaited and much needed. And it was a work of renewal and restoration of the people of God to their homeland, to the promised land. Of renewal and restoration of true biblical worship as God had commanded them through his servant Moses. And in preparation for the coming Messiah, Jesus himself. And I am linking this series today with our time, our day, and even our church. Today, as we look around us, we see that our country is in moral decline. And that it is speeding along at a rate that we did not anticipate. Things are moving downward much faster now. Than they used to be. So much so that we see laws coming into place that will legalize things that are illegal according to the commandments of God. So much so that there are laws that are going to be created and are in the works of being created that will prosecute and condemn and sentence people who disagree with that first statement. But worst of all, and the most needed thing of our day, as in every age, is a renewal of the people of God. You see, it is the people of God who are born again of the Spirit of God. It is the people of God who have the Word of God and prize the Word of God and believe the Word of God. It is the people of God who can shine brightly against the backdrop of moral decline and darkness. But in our day, as it was in Ezra's day, the people of God have been carried away in many respects as captives in a foreign land. We live in a foreign land. You and I today are missionaries. We are ambassadors of our true home, heaven. And being missionaries, being ambassadors sent, as it were, from God into hostile territory, into um, a mission field, for you and I here in this room, we call it Princeton and the surrounding area. But nevertheless, we're sent into this area, and this area does not look like our home. When I was growing up, we used to sing a song, this world is not my home, I'm just traveling through. We are just pilgrims and strangers here. But what happens is, if we're not careful, we become too comfortable here. What happens is, those who are sent to influence and impact the darkness, sometimes wind up being impacted by the darkness. Those of us who are sent to impact the darkness are sometimes influenced and impacted by the darkness. And we have a second problem 
The second problem is not the darkness outside of us, but the darkness that is inside of us. Because although I said, if you're a true child of God this morning, you have the Spirit of God, the light of the world indwells you, and yet there is still remaining corruption in you and me. And so we are impacted by the darkness outside. We war against the darkness that remains in the nature of sin that we all possess. And we are in constant need of spiritual renewal. And that's what this whole series is going to be about because that's what this whole account of the history of the people of God in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is all about. And my friends, there is no other book in the Bible that is more relevant to our day than this. Of course, they are all relevant, so I can say that of any book. But there are none any more relevant to our day and our situation than this book. Because, my friends, we need renewal. Years ago, we would talk about it in terms of revival. We would say, we need a revival. (laughs) I'm going to say something here that I had a conviction a few months back. As far as I'm concerned, I will never hold a series of meetings in this church that I call a revival. Because human beings don't call revivals, God calls revivals. Now, we may have meetings in this place, gospel evangelistic meetings, where we're praying and fasting that God will bring revival. But to call it a revival and only people that normally come out are the people in other churches that visit that church. (laughs) I talk to pastors all over the city and it's been the experience of this church. We'll hold a revival and more people from outside and other churches will come to our church and in those meetings than our own membership will. That happens pastor after pastor I talk to. And we want to call those things revivals. I don't think we should do that. I think you call it a revival when you can look back and retrospect with your mouth open and your eyes blurry with tears and say, I can't believe what God has done. God has truly awakened His people to spiritual renewal and revival. Praise God, let's write about it for the history books for future generations. But we cannot make revival happen. It happens at God's time and it happens in God's way. And we learned that last week as we looked at the beginning of the renewal. That was last week's title, Renewal Begins. The renewal began as, and I'm just recapping here, as God Almighty in heaven who had a covenant relationship with His people Israel, who had promised that they would be there for 70 years and He would bring them back. God at His time, God in His way, stirred a pagan king to do just that, to send the people that He had held captive back to their homeland and to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. God stirred certain of the people of Israel to have a mind and a heart and a desire to go back to Israel, to go back to Jerusalem and build this temple and reestablish God's law and sacrificial system there. And so that first message was all about the work of God, what God is doing. And so my attempt and my aim and my goal in these messages is not to say God's going to do it today through this series of messages. He could. I'm not attempting to make that assertion. But what I am doing and what I am aiming for is that we would pray 
that he would do it. That we would be moved from complacency and apathy and worldliness to plead with God. That our personal lives and hearts would be renewed in a spiritual way. And that our church would be renewed in a spiritual way. And that will have, no doubt, my friends, an impact on the city around us. So that brings us to this morning's text, chapter 3. The renewal continues the restoration. I have three main points that I want to bring out and some application at the end. I'll tell you what they are. Number one is renewing the altar. Number two is reinstating the sacrifices. And number three is rebuilding the temple. So we'll think under those three headings with our time. Renewing the altar, reinstating the sacrifices, and rebuilding the temple. Let's pray together. Father, the God of heaven and earth, the God who rules and reigns, the God who loves and God who is just and holy. We cry out to you today, God, as people who are in need. We cry out to you today, O God, as people who are so often and so prone to be lured by the world. The flash of things, stuff, relationships, jobs, homes, retirements, all the things, God, food, clothing, the things we need. And we just pray that in these messages, O God, from your word, That not my voice would speak, but your spirit. That you would speak in our hearts and you would help us to connect the dots. That we would see not only what happened historically. As your hand and your power moved in a sovereign way, in a faithful way to your people. But we would also connect the dots to our own hearts and our own lives. And at the very least, oh God, have a desire to be renewed to true spiritual, biblical worship, that we would live as you have called us to live in the height of joy that only comes from you. So do a work we pray, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So number one, renewing the altar. For those of you who were not here, the people of Israel had been held captive in Babylon for 70 years. They were held there because they had sinned against God. They had broken His commandments. They had forsaken Him and turned their back upon Him. Had sought of the gods, other things, and the pleasures of this world over against God. And God had done exactly what He promised He would do. And that is, He would come in and He would carry them away captive. In doing that, thousands of people died. In doing that, the city of Jerusalem was torn to pieces. In doing that, the walls of the city were broken down. In doing that, the temple itself was destroyed. The altar torn down. And the people taken captive. And in that first message, we saw how God, in His covenant-keeping faithfulness, begins to work to renew His people. And today, the renewal continues as we see the restoration. Number one, renewing the altar. Let's read verses one to three. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered, and pay attention to this phrase, if you would, please, as one man to Jerusalem. 
Then arose Jeshua, the son of Zadok, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And so the first thing we see this morning as we continue to see God renewing his people is that as they gather back to the land, the first thing that they want to do is to reestablish the altar of God, to renew the altar and put it back in its proper place. And in verse 1, I told you to notice that phrase and notice, if you would, this morning, the principle of power in unity. The principle of power in unity. My friend today, one of the main tasks of Satan and demon spirits today is nothing less than attempting by every and all means possible to divide the church of Jesus Christ. Because if he can divide us, he will weaken us. There is a power in unity. It is a principle, you can write it down, put it on your wall, put it on your calendar, whatever you do, put it there and understand there is a principle in the Word of God and in the reality of our lives, and that principle is this, there's power in unity. There is power in unity even outside of the church. There is power in unity, whether it's a football team, when all of those guys are working together, each one pulling his weight, each one doing what he's supposed to do. Let me tell you something. That ball team is going to win. They're going to win because there is a power in unity. That is true whether it's a corporation. (laughs) That's true whether it's a family. You take a family that Satan has come in and they're divided. Oh, they're weakened. They are weakened. And Satan is attempting and has always attempted to divide the people of God. And he is doing that, trying to do that, is doing that in many respects today. The phrase there that catches your attention as one man. This creates a synergy when the people of God come together with a singular purpose, with a singular passion. We can see this clearly as we look back in the Old Testament, can't we? You remember when people fell into sin and one of the things, first thing happened, they were thrown out of the garden. And the people began to gather themselves and we have this story called the Tower of Babel. And even God declares there this principle that I'm sharing with you this morning. He said, if they come together as one to do this, there's nothing they cannot do. And so division and disunity is a great enemy of the church of Jesus Christ. And we see that, do do we not, in in the letters in the New Testament? Paul writes all the time when he's writing back to the churches. Be of one mind, brothers. Be of one heart. In other words, have a singular mission. Have a singular focus. Have a singular passage, passion rather, that will ignite this synergy In your efforts to worship and praise and share the gospel and see people saved and discipled for Christ. And what was their 
singular purpose and passion. It was this. To seek God. That's what it was. To seek God. They, what, what is the purpose of establishing the altar? What is the purpose of renewing this altar on the place where God had said to put it? The purpose of the altar, what well, it, it is that at that place that we can, as a people, seek the God of heaven. For what? For fellowship, for communion with the living God. To have this connection, as it were, with the God of heaven through the sacrifice of the substitute. So, that was their priority. That was their priority. And my friends, let me just ask you, what priorities do you have in your life? I can tell you a little trick that I use sometimes to reevaluate my priorities. Because if I were to ask you if you prioritize God, most of you would say yes. But if you would sit down before God and you would look at these few things, you would say, okay, God, where do I spend the majority of my time? Where do I spend the majority of my money? And what is it that ignites, fills my heart with joy? Those three things can help us. Because if I look back over my week, let's say, (laughs) and I have spent X amount of time in prayer. In passionate, pleading prayer, oh God, I want to know you. I want to experience you today. I want to feel the the warmth of your embrace. I want to feel the smile of your countenance. I want to feel the and experience that promise that you made to me, Jesus, when you said that you would come to me and you would manifest yourself to me. But if you go a whole week and that prayer never comes... <laughs> then it can help us to reorient. It can help us to think about, maybe I wasn't prioritizing communion with God like I would really like to do. And so those are some things that can help. But these folks in our text are clearly united as one man, as one person. There's no division. They have one goal. That's to have communion and worship God together through the means that he's prescribed. And that means starting with the altar. The place where we can commune with God. And certainly we could say and see that they had other pressing things in their life. I hear people all the time and I am tempted all the time to make excuses. Are we not? To say, you know, I have so many other things that I have to get done. <laughs> I mean, I've got to work. I've got, you know, school. I've got to go to, I've got to, I've got to pay my bills. You know, I've got to go to the grocery store. I've got to mow my grass. I mean, I've got a wife. I've got a husband. I've got children. I've got grandchildren. There's all these, this stuff that I've got to do. And there's all these pressing things in my life. And certainly they could have said the same thing. I mean, we just got back into town. I mean, we've got to do other things. There's stuff we've got to do. But we see that they were united in the purpose of seeking God. And they were not deterred by the other fleeting things of this world. But they made it a priority in the midst of all the other things going on. 
Let me give you a few examples of this building of the altar for the purpose of establishing communion with God. Let me give you some text. First of all, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, and you don't have to turn there, just jot these down. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, we find that Noah, the first thing that Noah did when he left the ark was to build an altar to the Lord. I found this remarkable. You know, when I first came to this church, I believe it was a Sunday night, Jackie and I visited the church. We knew that God was calling us here. We thought, okay, let's go and see. And so we're, we're there, sitting right over here. And I'll never forget that series of messages. I don't know what all it was about. But Pastor Butch preached about Abraham building an altar. And that struck me. Everywhere Abraham went, he built an altar to the Lord. The, one of the, the, the priority of Abraham was to establish this altar so that he could commune with God, so that he could offer up his praises and his sacrifices to God and to seek the face of God and the favor of God. And that's what Noah did. I mentioned Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. We find the Abrahamic covenant. It's when God told Abraham, get up from your father's house and leave. Go to the place I'm going to show you. And it says that he he built an altar to the Lord. And on and on in the life of Abraham, you can read there for yourself. So Noah did it. Abraham did it. Jacob did it. And, and, and I remind you that this is before the, uh, the law was ever given. This is before any temple or any tabernacle. Okay. They've had an altar. They had an altar. So that they could seek the face of God. We have Abraham, also Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. When he returned to the land of Canaan, he built an altar in Genesis chapter 33 and verse 20. Genesis chapter 33 and verse 20. And then Moses himself, as he is instructed by God in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 15, built an altar to the Lord. An altar. To the Lord. Why? Because the priority and the desire of his heart, of their hearts, was to seek the face of God. Exodus chapter 20. I do want to read this to you. Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 to 26. I want you to listen. If you don't turn, you can if you'd like. Exodus 20, 22 to 26. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus You shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. I have talked with you, God says, from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth shall you make for me. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. And here's the phrase, I will come to you and bless you. Then he goes on to say, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones. In other words, you take a chisel and you cut it and you shape it. Why? For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. It's a massive indictment of the sinfulness of human beings. Even what we do, what I'm doing today, has a mixture of corruption and holiness in it. Because I am not a perfect man. And nothing that we do as human beings is totally perfect and holy. 
And God says, don't even, don't even try to shape the stones, lest you profane the altar that you make. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So God had all of these, he had, he had a plan exactly for how he wanted them to make it. You know what that tells me, by the way? We're going to see that later on when we get to the book of Nehemiah. That God has an awful lot to say about how his people should worship him. Did you know that? Now, the Bible does not say everything about what we should do and how we should do it, but the Bible has a whole lot to say that should help shape our convictions of that. So those two phrases combined, I have talked with you from heaven, God has revealed himself to his covenant people, and he says, where you build this altar, wherever I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. The altar was seen as a place to beseech God, to seek God, and to commune with the God of heaven for favor and blessings and joy. And that's what you and I should do. It represents communion with God and the blessings that flow out of that communion. That's number one. Number two is reinstating the sacrifices. Verses three to six. Let's go back to Ezra. Ezra chapter three, verse three. This is reinstating the sacrifices. We have an reestablished altar, and now we're going to have the sacrifices. This is what he says. Verse 3. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings, read those two words, morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths. Or tabernacles, some translations, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. And we'll come to that here in just a moment. So now we have the reinstating of the sacrifices. What's the purpose of the altar? To commune with God and to enjoy the benefits of that communion that flow out into our lives and the blessings of our lives. But what happens at the altar specifically is that the altar is designed to be... For there to be a sacrifice placed on it. The sacrifice is burned on the altar. And the smoke, as it were, would ascend upward toward heaven. Representing the prayers, the petitions, the desires, and the praises of the people of God. You see it? It's a visual. We come to God. This is very important. We come to God through a substitutionary sacrifice that is then able to carry our pleas, our petitions, and bring to us the favor and the blessings of communion with God. And so this was the renewal of true worship. And notice, if you will, the centrality of sacrifice. The centrality of sacrifice. At the center of our Christian faith is a sacrifice. Never forget that. And the call 
To be a child of God today, the call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is a call of sacrifice. That you and I would be willing to lay down our life as we knew it before in order that we might live anew to God. That we might be willing to sacrifice temporal things and temporal pleasures and temporal satisfactions that we desire in the flesh in order that we might please God. And experience a joy and a peace and a pleasure that is superior to those fleeting pleasures. Verse 3 tells us that they were fearful of the peoples around them. Here we have the people coming back. They've been gone for 70 years and now they're returning. And what happens when the new, when the new kid comes to school? What happens when the new people come to churches? So often I hear these horror stories and I have unfortunately experienced it a little bit and seen it and read about it even more where people come and the new people are not accepted. Maybe you're the new person at work. (laughs) You ever been there? The new person, you know, the new person in the family, a husband and wife get married. Let me tell you young folks something. My in-laws are sitting here today. I got to be real careful. But when you get married, you don't just marry that person. You marry their family. And I've been blessed. I've been blessed above measure. But it is true. And you might be the new person in the family. What about when a little brother gets, when a brother gets a little brother? A lot of times in life, when the new person comes, it disrupts things. You know, I liked it the way it was. So here these people come back and they're claiming to be the true people of God. We know that all the way up to the time of Christ, who do we hear about? The conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. When did the Samaritans start to be in existence? I'll tell you. When God carried away the people of Israel, captive by the Babylons, and he, and so what they would do, they took the people of this land, put them over here in Babylonia, and they took those people from these other lands that they conquered, and they put them in Jerusalem. And so you have these half-breeds, as it were. That's what they were called, these half-bloods. They weren't true blood Jewish people. And so they're coming back and the people are looking and say, hey man, we were doing fine without you. We were worshiping God on this place. What do you mean you need to tear down our altar and build a new one? What do you mean you're going to change things up around here? Oh no, you're not doing that. And we're going to see that next sermon. That this opposition begins to rise. But I want you to see the seeds of it even here as it says, they were fearful because of the people. But I want you to write this down. They were fearful yet resolved. They were fearful yet resolved. In the midst of their enemies, they pressed on. They would not allow the fear of their enemies to drive them to disobedience to God. My friend, fear is a great enemy in our lives. How many times, because of the fear of other people and what they'll think and what they'll say and what they might do, that we are tempted, if not guilty, of compromising God's Word. Tempted, if not guilty, of compromising the commandments of God in our lives. They were fearful, yet they were resolved. They were seeking God with a covenant relationship which God had established with them, which was to be maintained through their obedience to His law, which included this altar and sacrificial system, and they knew they must obey the Lord. 
rather than man. Notice, if you would, the phrase morning and evening. I had you to think about that as we read it. It speaks to me today that communion with God and a relationship with God is a daily walk with God. Let me say three things about this reinstating of the sacrifices. Number one, the sacrifices were a continual reminder of their sin. Morning and evening... What happens on the altar, you would sacrifice in the morning and you would sacrifice in the evening. Well, guess what? You know, it's not like, you know, you start a little fire. If you start a fire in your house, okay, if you you, uh, have a fireplace or you grew up in a place where you had a fireplace, you start the fire in the morning because it's it's cold, man. You got to get up and stoke the fire or maybe even start it if it went out. But you start the fire in the morning and it burns throughout the day. And that's what this is. This is a continual expression reminding the people of Israel of their guilt every day. That we are guilty before God as sinners and we need a substitute. Every morning I have to have a substitute because I'm guilty. Every evening got to keep that going. Not to mention the different festivals that they would celebrate and we'll talk about one of them in a moment. So that's the first thing. It was a continual reminder of their sin. Secondly, the sacrifices were a continual reminder of the mercy of God that was given through a substitute. It reminded them not only of their sin, but of the mercy of God. As they would stoke the fires and as they would put that offering on the altar, they would be remembering that God is a merciful God. But God is not just merciful like, you know, uh, I know you've done me wrong, but that's okay. That's not the way God's mercy works. I want you to hear this. God's mercy works and comes to you through a substitute. No other way. So they couldn't just, God, give us your favor. (laughs) God, give us Give us your blessings, provide for us, make us, make our cattle fruitful and, you know, help us and give us health and, and, and provide for us and protect us from our enemies. And just, we want to have communion with you and everything that you provide. Just give us all of that. They cannot, and you and I this morning cannot go to God like that. Cannot. The only way that they could come to God and the only way that you could come to God and expect to receive favor and blessing and joy and happiness is through A substitute. And every time they lit the fire. And every time they laid a sacrifice on the altar. That's what it reminded them. Number one, I'm sinful. Number two, God's merciful. And number three. The sacrifices were a continual reminder. Of the ultimate sacrifice to come. Namely. Jesus of Nazareth. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming around where he was baptizing on the Jordan River, it's recorded in the gospel accounts that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Every lamb that was sacrificed, every ram and 
pigeon and every animal that was laid on that altar morning and evening, morning and evening, the celebration of the day of atonement when the high priest would take the blood of the substitutionary sacrifice into the holy of holies representing heaven itself. Those were all pointers that there is coming one who is the ultimate, final and fully sufficient sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Number two, I mean, number three, it's number three. So we've had the renewing of the altar, the reinstating of the sacrifices, and thirdly, finally, the rebuilding of the temple itself. Let's look at verse seven. And verse seven says, so they, so they gave money to the masons, because you remember the last thing we read is the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons, to the carpenters and food and drink and oil um, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the, the grant that they had from Cyrus king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming, so this is two years after they came, this is when all this took place. In the second year after their coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Zadok, made a beginning together with the rest of his kin, their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. This is what they said. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They were being renewed, my friends, and they recognized the joy and the greatness of it. Verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites, the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though... Many shouted about for joy, aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. But the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So let me say three things about the rebuilding of the temple. Number one, think of the word preparations, verses six and seven. The foundation was not laid. So preparations were made to begin to build it. In your life, in your career, in your relationship to a spouse, in raising children, everything that you do, preparation is essential. It's critical. In having a church that is biblical in its mission and its focus and its practice, there must be preparations. There must be study and prayer, petitions to God, 
that we will do it in a way that's pleasing to Him and according to His Word. Secondly, think about the, think about the phrase, leadership established. Leadership established. Verse 8. We see the giving here again of the names of the people who would be in leadership of the operation of rebuilding the temple. And certainly, once again, everything I've always heard my whole life rises and falls upon what? Leadership. Leadership is important. And the Word of God has a lot to say about leaders. And we need to be diligent students of God's Word that we may lead accordingly. And thirdly, the foundation itself was laid in verse 10. And I put these two, these two um, couplets together, two words, labor and praise, labor and praise. The people worked and they praised. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? We got to work, <laughs> and while we work, we praise. Because the only way that this temple is going to be built, God's decisively and ultimately responsible for it. He moved in the heart of Cyrus. He moved in the hearts of the people. He moved in their hearts to provide what was necessary. He's given them the strength, the energy, the resolve, the desire. He's protecting them from their enemies. And he's doing all of this work. But none of it gets done without a hammer. I'm just using that as an example. I don't know if they used hammers. But they had something. Hands and feet and legs. We have to work. We have to labor in the vineyard of souls. If you want to see people get saved, <laughs> then we got to go out and sow the seed of the gospel. If we want to see a harvest of, of fruitfulness in our lives for the glory of Christ, we cannot expect God to do it outside of our participation with Him. He reveals Himself to us. He reveals His plan to us. He reveals what He's going to do, and He commands us to work. But as we work, we praise. The second couplet, these two words, sadness and joy. It says that as they began to lay the foundations of the temple, they were just overwhelmed by joy. God! Is renewing his people. We've been waiting on this for a long time. Have you been waiting on something for a long time? And they were overwhelmed by joy. But in the, in the midst of the joy of seeing God renewing his people. And reestablishing the sacrificial system of true worship. The people, the older people who had been there and saw the glory of the previous one, were sad. So you have, and I just think that is so remarkable, you have this mixture of sadness and joy. Is that not a picture of the church? When we worship every Sunday morning, there is a mixture of sadness and joy. Every Sunday. They were grieving over the devastation of sin. We remember what this temple looked like. We remember the blood in the streets. We remember the desecration of this house. The house of God. We remember its glory. And now we can see already even in the building of the foundations. This is not going to be as big. 
It's not going to be as glorious. It's never going to be what it was. And they were grieving over the devastation of sin. And my friends, one of the great marks of the grace of God in a person's life. In other words, if I look at you and you look at me and you say, well, how do I know God's working in my life? I ask you this question. Do you grieve over sin? The grieving over sin is a sure sign of the hand of God on your heart. You must grieve over sin before you come to repentance, to turn from sin. You must grieve over sin. And as I look out in my world today, my heart today, I grieve. Every Sunday there's a mixture of joy and the mercy of God and the goodness of God and the covenant-keeping faithfulness of God and the love of God that He has shown us in Christ and extended to us in Christ. And there is a grieving sadness over sin and corruption and devastation in my heart and in this world. They laid the foundations. I could dedicate a whole sermon to the importance of strong foundations. Let me read you something our Lord said in Matthew seven twenty four. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the wind and the floods came and the winds blew, excuse me, and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. Renewal, my friends, has stages to it. And the place to begin is with God. Begin with God, as we see in our story. They didn't have the temple yet, but they did what they could. They built an altar. They started to give the daily morning and evening sacrifices. They celebrated at the proper time the Feast of Booths, which reminded them of their exile, of their forefathers in Egypt, and how he had been faithful to bring them out after 400 years into the land of Canaan, out of which they had been exiles. And so can you imagine keeping that Feast of Booths that first time? Back in the land. They did what they could at the time. They began with the priority of seeking God, with worshiping God, with communing with God. And they built and they worked. And they continued to do what they could do. And that's a word to you, my friend. Do what you can do. They didn't have the temple yet. And there's a lot of things in your life. There's a lot of things in our church that we don't have in place yet. Do what you can do. Do what you can do today. Renewal happens in stages. What is God telling you to do today? What has God laid upon your heart to do today in response to His Word? You start there. You start there. Let me give you a few closing remarks. Number one, we have a designated place like the altar. His name is Jesus. Where we can now come together and commune with God. Secondly, we have a full and sufficient sacrifice. And therefore we now can offer to God acceptable sacrifices of what? Lambs? (laughs) No. 
praise, thanksgiving, good works, sacrificial giving and sacrificial living. I give you a text, Hebrews 13, 15 and 16 says this, through him that is Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Thirdly, we have a temple. His name is Jesus, who provides for us the very presence of God. Every child of God has access to God through Jesus Christ. And you're going to see, as we're seeing already, that Jesus is the ultimate Of everything that we're learning. He is the high priest. He's the sacrifice. And he is the temple ultimate. Number four. This is where I bring some application in. It is important for us to be unified. In our purpose of seeking God. And his glory above all things. I'm going to say that again. Because I want you to know. You're sitting here today. I want you to know this. What is my purpose? This is it. To seek God and His glory above all things. If you'll join me in that, we'll be united and there'll be a power. There'll be a power. The second thing in way of application, it is important for us to continually remember the centrality of the sacrifice of Christ for us. Reminding us continually of our sinfulness and God's mercy. At the center of all that we do and all that we are is a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world for you and for me. Next, it is important for us to build upon the foundation of Christ and the word of God, our lives and our local church. What are you building your life on today? Is it on Christ? If you build your life on something else, it's sinking sand. Did you know the richest people, the most powerful people in the world today may not be building on a good foundation? And although they may look by all outward appearances to have everything going their way, I assure you they do not. Build your life and we must build this church on the foundation of Jesus Christ and His Word. And finally, it is important for us to continue to build With the strength that God supplies. And listen, at the pace that God allows. It is stages. (laughs) And God has his, His plan. God has His purposes. And we grow with the strength. We build, we work, we labor with the strength that He supplies. And we grow and we build and we see the renewal happen at the pace that God supplies and provides. How many, how many of you want to grow faster than you currently are? <laughs> I do. Sanctification is one of the most mysterious doctrines in all of the Bible. I want to be more like Jesus than I am. And I get so frustrated with myself. Do what you can do. When you can do it. With the strength that God provides. 
at the pace that He allows. This church will not grow in spiritual matters, which is more important than numerical matters. This church will not grow any faster than God has determined that it will grow. Because it is neither He who sows that is anything, nor He who waters, Paul says, but God who adds the increase. Let's pray together. Oh God, as we come to you this evening, we are so ready for you to do a work. And I pray that our readiness will not just drop off the map when we leave out of this place today. I pray, God, that you will give us a heart to linger longer in prayer and more often in prayer. I pray that you would give us a heart if it would be pleasing to you and if it would be beneficial for us that we would fast from earthly food and provisions and stuff in order that we might seek your face more diligently, more wholeheartedly. I pray that you would give us a heart that has as a supreme passion a desire to glorify you through obedience to your word and your commands. Oh God, I pray that if there's one in this room today who needs not to be renewed but to be revived, to be actually resurrected from spiritual death, I pray that even in this moment, you would do the thing that you did at Lazarus' tomb. (laughs) Lazarus, come forth, that you will cry out to these hearts and the words that have been spoken today about their sinfulness and about your provision for that sin in Christ would ring so true, so loud, and so profoundly in their hearts that they would say, Oh God, forgive me. Oh God, come into my life and do this work. Make me your own that I may live for your glory and for your honor and for the glory of Jesus Christ. I trust in the finished work of that one the preacher was talking about. Jesus, the full and sufficient sacrifice who can save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. So do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.